Well, as we continue to walk through the Christian story, the story of redemption, I want to just keep this visual in front of you, uh, as we've used it time and time again for, for looking at the arc of Scripture, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And just a reminder, last week we talked about uh, really how the whole story is moving those two tabs there on the end. It starts with life, then loss, then love, then life. Uh, last week we talked about God being the life giver, how he gives new life, and that is what we need, right? We need that complete and utter transformation, and that is the direction the story is going. Even in the end of the book of Revelation, uh, Jesus says, I am making all things new. Uh, and so we need that transformational life. We're going to focus in on this third panel in that tag there where it says love today and talking about Jesus being love. And here's what we're doing. So since two weeks ago when Ron introduced really the, uh, the, the hinge point of the whole story, the incarnation or the coming of the person of Jesus Christ, uh, we really have moved away from walking chronologically uh, or, or through uh, book, not book by book, but section by section of the Old Testament to more of a topical approach here at the end to see how Jesus threads these themes of God together, how he is the life giver today, how he is uh, the God who loves. And so today we're going to be talking about love, but I want to, you know, one of the goals of this series is to help us understand how our Bible fits together. And so I want to pull the camera back and just talk about kind of the mechanics of your Bibles for just a second so you can uh, figure out, you know, even the table of contents and what you're looking at it as it walks us through this story of redemption. I'm going to do this really quickly, uh, and so hang in there with me. But uh, in the Old Testament, here's how it's put together. Uh, really, the first five books is Genesis to Deuteronomy. This is where we probably spent the most time in this series thus far. These are the books that Moses wrote. Uh, it's often called the Law of, or the Torah, and so you see multiple covenants there. Uh, the covenant of creation, Noah, Moses, Abraham. Uh, then you have the historical books. Uh, these books are exactly that. They're historical. They're just showing or walking you through the history of God's people. And so really, that's Joshua through the book of Esther. Then God, in all of his wisdom, knew that uh, humans were made for more than just stories and more than just law, and so he gave us things like songs in the Psalms, or wisdom literature uh, in everything that really from the Psalms to Song of Solomon, and that's often called the writings. Then you have the prophets, and we've spent the least amount of time here thus far, but we mentioned last week that the prophets were the people who were really the mouthpiece of God. And when God's people started getting off track and forgetting the covenant that God had made with his people, they warned them. And then they served a second purpose where they pointed them forward to hope of the coming Messiah. And that's why in Advent you will hear a lot from the prophets say Isaiah, who points his people forward to hope. And the, really the prophets are divided into two sections. You have the major and the minor prophets. And just to give you the quick version of what that means. Isaiah to Daniel are just longer prophets, more volume, if you will, right? That's why they're the major prophets, and they're also very influential. But then Hosea to Malachi, or as I like to call him, the Italian prophet Malachi, he, um, that's the minor prophets, right? These are the shorter books. Some of you just got that. That was good. Uh, sorry, I was, that just fell flat, and that's okay. New Testament, all right? Let's fast forward to the New Testament, and, and I wanted to give you this today because, again, uh, we're looking at really what comes in the New Testament very topically. But Matthew through John, this is what we call the Gospels, all right? And this is really um, the incarnation of Christ. This is when Christ came, and these are eyewitness accounts of what Jesus did while he was on earth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Acts is kind of this transitional book written similar to the Gospels, written by Luke. 
uh, but it was really this transitional phase between Jesus' ascension to heaven and the continuing work of the church and how God uh, has called the church to live out Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And, and then you get to these sections called the epistles. Epistles is just a, facet, or, or a fancy word for letters, right? So these are literally letters written by people to different churches, typically, or individuals. And so there's a bigger section called the Pauline epistles. That just means Paul wrote them. And those titles tend to be the addressee, who the letter was going to. So one letter was written to the Romans. Another one was written to a guy named Philemon, right? And so those are Paul's letters. And what these letters tend to do is apply the work, and, uh, the work of Jesus Christ to the lives of individual churches. And then you have Hebrews to Jude, which we call the general epistles. These are basically letters written to uh, usually churches, but by people other than Paul, Okay. Uh, and these are usually titled after the person who wrote them, okay, just to make you aware of how that's put together. And at the very end, you have that last slide that's captured in the apocalyptic literature of Revelation, where it's really the consummation and where this whole story is headed, all right? So just wanted to give you a high-level view. If you just open your Bible and you're trying to make sense of this thing and how it's put together, this is how it's put together. 66 books put together, God and his wisdom differently, that is telling all the same story. So, with that in mind, uh, let, me, let me start off talking about this idea of love here this morning. And, and let me start off by giving you just a, a picture of, well, asking you to imagine living my life for a day, okay? So, imagine you're living my life and, and you're married to, you're not, this gets weird real quick. Uh, so, I'm married to Sarah. Just imagine peeking in on a day, all right? And so over the course of the day, I hear my wife, Sarah, say uh, the word love several times. At one point, she says, I love chocolate. I love chocolate. She loves chocolate. You love chocolate, right? You love chocolate. Later on, she says very caringly and tenderly to one of our children, I love you, right? Just bringing comfort to them in a moment, right? So I see her motherly love. And then a little bit later on, the dog does something funny. She goes, I love our dog, right? And then later that night, we go out on a date. And then in the middle of that date, it's just one of those moments where she just leans in and she goes, Anthony, I love you. Now, what if I, at that moment, just slam the table and went, wait a minute. You, you just throw that word around, love, all over the place. You love the dog. You love chocolate. What am I, right? Like, what, what if I just kind of throw that little temper tantrum in that moment? What, what would you say? You'd, you'd be like, Anthony, you're being stupid, Right? Right? I, I'm, I'm assuming what she means by love, but I'm not necessarily taking in the nuance of the moment and what's happening. So here's one thing that I would say uh, our world, our day, and our culture believes when it comes to God. If they're going to believe in God at all, the one thing that they would often agree with is saying, yeah, I, God is love. I, I agree with you, Anthony. God is love. But it might be followed up with something like, you know, God, God's great because God is love. It's the Christians I don't like because, you know, they're kind of judgy, right? Um, they, they, they don't, you know, they don't just constantly take me for me or let me do what I want to do without giving me grief for it. And, and here's what I would say, and what's behind that is this assumption that when we think of God as love, because I don't think that's a false uh, statement about God. We see it, his steadfast love in the Old Testament. We see it, and we're going to talk about it here today in the new, but when we say things like um, God is love and he basically, uh, he wouldn't be loving if he didn't let me do whatever it is I wanted to do, uh, we're actually attaching meaning to it 
where we would actually miss out on exactly what God is talking about when he's saying God is love. When we say the nature of love is non-judgmental, it says, hey, God wants me to do whatever I want and be whoever I want to be, but then we ignore places where God actually cares greatly about truth and justice. We miss out on aspects of the Bible where God really cares that we love our neighbor as ourselves, and we can't always do that if we just want to do what we want to do. If we live there, we're making the same error that I made in front of my wife, where I'm assuming the meaning of love, where I'm taking it out of context, and where I'm really missing the character of the lover altogether. I am missing who God is, and I am missing exactly what it means when God says He is love. And so today we're going to be talking about the God who loves. We're going to look at three things. One, that His love is complex, or it has some nuance to it that we just need to understand. That His love is astonishing. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the measure of that love. And so first, let's look at this idea that his love is complex. And and I'm just going to breeze through this relatively quickly. I I just want to encourage you with this to think of when you read in your Bibles, because that's really the only place we can go to truly understand what God's love means, is his word, not our own assumptions, not what other people tell about us or tell us of his love. But that we go to his word and we wrestle with, what does his love mean in this context, right? Right? Because he portrays his love differently. Let me give you a couple of examples. One example of his love is his providential love, right? His his love and care for his creation. Matthew 5, Jesus says, I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may, uh, may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. And then he draws this parallel of this sort of love with God's care for creation, where he says, for God makes his son to rise on evil, uh, on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. And so there's one aspect of God's love that we are all constantly experiencing, whether we have placed our faith in him or not, that he is caring for his creation. Some people would call this an amoral, not immoral, but amoral love. Another type of love that we see in God's word is his love uh, that is a yearning or inviting love. In Ezekiel, God says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. And so is this, there's this yearning love that God displays where he is calling people to turn away from a road to destruction and to himself. Jesus displays this in Matthew chapter 9 where he sees those who uh, have, uh, have, they're following their own way and it says he has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And then he turns to his follower and he says, pray, stop right now and pray that people will go into the harvest to call others back to them, to, to God, so that may, they may not perish. That's an example of God's yearning love. There's other forms of love that we'll see throughout Scripture. There's a selective love that we see. God says oftentimes in Scripture things like this in Malachi 1. God is talking to his people. He says, I have loved you, uh, but you say, how have you loved us? And then he says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob But Esau, I have hated. There is a selective love that God displays throughout Scripture. We'll see it in Romans 8 and 9 and 10. We'll see it in places like Ephesians chapter 5, where it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Right? And so there's just different nuances to his love. There's discipline that's a part of his love. Right? 
And that feels different than the warm, fuzzy moments that we so often attribute when we say God is love. And, and the reason I even open this brief can of worms is to challenge us in this reality that if you stop and think about your own life and how many different ways you would say love today or tomorrow, it's complex. It's nuanced, right? Here's my challenge. Consider the fact that God loves with the same forms of nuance, yet he does so, unlike us, without error, and loves absolutely perfect. Just, I want you to sit in that. If you give yourself that form of credit, and if you challenge God in his love, I would just say give him the same, um, the, the same uh, permission to love in different ways that we need to wrestle through and understand as you give yourself. But let's lean into the type of love that we see most profoundly throughout the pages of Scripture and what we see here in John three sixteen. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open in them there. And this is really God's astonishing, salvific, or love of salvation. Follow along with me. Three sixteen. it says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But if whoever does what is true comes to the light so that may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. All right, so let's go back to my date with Sarah. I know all all of you like boys age 11 and under, like please stop talking about the love stuff here for just a second. But, you know, bear with me. Uh, Let's go back on that date, right? And so what if I totally take my wife's I love you in context and I am just overwhelmed with her love for me and I return by saying, Sarah, I love you too. I, you, you are the most beautiful, compassionate, fun, insert whatever other adjectives that I really do believe about my wife. And I cannot wait to spend the rest of my life with you. Right? That's oftentimes what we mean when we say, I love you, right? In those moments. Now, now here's what I don't mean in that moment. If I say I love you back, I don't mean, Sarah, I love you, even though you're a little unkempt and you haven't brushed your teeth and it's kind of rough. And you, you know, you really, you know, that anger thing, we need to really work through that. I love you in spite of all of those things, right? That's usually not what we mean. And baby, I, I don't. That is not, this is an example. You're first category the whole way, okay? First category. But, but we would say, yeah, that's not what we mean. Well, friends, when we see these words, for God so loved the world, we're oftentimes thinking in that first category. We're thinking, God so loves me. And you know what? We're wrong if that's what we actually think this verse is saying. I would actually argue what John is conveying here is he's saying, for God so loved the world in that second category, in spite of yourself. You see, John 3.16, I have found, have 
has less and less of an impact on us because we assume that first meaning. God looking at us and just saying, I love you because you're so awesome. You're great. I can't, heaven would be an empty place without you. I cannot wait to get you here. You're so awesome. And in part, some of that is true, but that's not at all what John is saying here. And we will fail to be astonished by God's love if we approach it by saying, God, of course you love me. You ought to. I'm pretty awesome. Here's what John is saying. If you read the book of John, when he uses the term world, he is never using it in that first sense. He is almost always, I said never, I I think there might be one place where there's a little bit of question, but in his Gospels, the word world doesn't mean bigness, the number of people in the world. It actually means badness. It doesn't mean bigness, it means badness. John talks about the world as being a human-centered, created order that God has made and that has rebelled against him in hatefulness and idolatry, resulting in broken relationships, infidelity, and weakness. That's how God talks, or that's how John talks about world almost every single time. Even in the beginning of his book, here's how he starts off. The true light, Jesus, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. God made the world. But then what happens? Yet, the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people didn't receive him. Even in this passage, and this is why I would say, as you read your Bible, context is king. Don't just lift a verse out and assume you know what it means. What does it say about verse 19 in the world? It says, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. The people loved darkness rather than light because their works were evil. This is God's salvific love. He is saying, you are a broken, horrific rebel. And I love you anyway. Because that's the type of God I am. The first part of John 3 shows us how people are reconciled to Him. It's through this transformational rebirth that is nothing short of a miracle. But the second part of this section is basically God telling us His motives for actually coming to us. For pursuing men and women and children with His regenerating power. It's because of His love. Isn't motivation for doing something important? If somebody gives you something because they're just trying to prop themselves up, or just because they're trying to scratch their own back or make themselves feel better, it kind of rings hollow, doesn't it? What God is saying here is, I am coming to woeful, broken rebels because I love them and I want to see them spend eternity with me. Dane Ortland says this, the cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move towards that sin and suffering, not away from it. That is the nature of the love of our Savior. So friends, I want you to think of your most unlovable moment. We don't do this very often. I don't want you to dwell there too long, but here's a picture of something that's kind of my most unlovable moment. This is what kind of early pandemic world looked like in the church. This was right before the Good Friday service. This is my living room. 
Uh, this is our little makeshift film studio. And so I've done a lot more recording of myself over the course of the pandemic. And, and at times it's quite miserable uh, because it just takes take after take. And one time when I was recording, I had yelled up and I had tell, told people in the house, hey, don't make a noise for the next 30 minutes, which is unreasonable. Um, don't make a noise for the next 30 minutes because I'm recording, right? Um, filming a sermon. And so I'm about 15 minutes into it, and I hear a loud noise upstairs, and I just kind of King Kong it. I just have this moment of like, I told you not to make a noise, and stop the recording, and get set, and I go back just to find my place and see if I can salvage it. And you know what I did? I listened to myself. I, I, my most unlovable moment, where I just went off on this tirade, was on the screen. And I listened to it, and it just broke my heart. And I just stopped it, and I ran upstairs. And thankfully, you know, after talking to my family members and repenting, I was reminded that this is exactly when Jesus moves towards me. In these most unlovable moments, me being a part of the broken world, that is when Jesus came and is still moving towards me. That is an astonishing love. Let's look at the last point, the measure of love that we see here. And in John 3.16, what does it say? For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Do we stop and think about the cost of what Jesus' coming was? For God to give His only Son. Think about that. If you're a parent, think about that cost. Friends, that That is what God had in view, that sort of cost, when He sent Jesus for you to say, believe in Me. For those who have placed their faith in Christ, this is kind of uh, the measure that God says, hey, I have given you the most, therefore everything else I will also graciously give you. Romans 8. It says, He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? He said, God's given you the $10 million mansion. He's going to give you a roll of toilet paper in a pandemic. Like, He's given you this. He's going to give you this. We live in constant states of fear and angst and depression because we forget God has given us what cost Him everything. His Son. We also see the purpose here of why Jesus came. 3.16 will come that we will not perish, but have eternal life with Him. In verse 18, He came not to condemn the world, but to save it. Friends, Jesus is not merely an example or a victim or a lesson for others. He died to save people from the condemnation that was already hanging over them. And He did so that He could spend eternity with them. We oftentimes think that Jesus came down to a bunch of innocents, right? He came to Washington Square in Philly where people were sitting nicely, interacting with each other, complimenting each other, and and that's just kind of the world he came into. No, Jesus came to death row. To, as verse 18, what it says, to people who are already condemned and said, I've come to save you so that you can spend eternity with me. Friends, we don't get that. We've never gone to death row to say, hey, I want to spend the next week with you right? But that is who heart, Jesus' heart was drawn towards. 
In October of 2010, Pam went on a solo hike up Mount Washington in New Hampshire. And if you know anything about Mount Washington, it is known to have the worst weather in the world. Worst weather in the world. Now, it was October, so she knew she packed extra clothes, she packed a snow goggle, some extra food and drink, because uh, she could see the clouds already forming, and she knew weather could get bad up at the top. And so she started hiking, the snow started getting worse. She decided, if this keeps going any longer, I'm going to just turn around and walk back down, because my own safety is going to be uh, in question here. But right before she was getting ready to turn around, she looked in the snow, and she saw a set of fresh prints. And so she looked and she noticed that it wasn't the sole of like a hiking boot or something like that. And she began to get nervous because it looked like just simple tennis shoes. And so she followed these, this, um, the tracks off trail and she found a man who was wearing jeans, a light jacket, just sitting against a boulder. And he was relatively unresponsive. Now she also was prepared in search and rescue. She was on a search and rescue team. So she knew what to do. She went and she... Uh, She changed his clothes to her warmer clothes so that he wouldn't go hypothermic. She tried to warm him up with the hot chocolate that she had, and eventually he got strong enough where she was like, follow me down. Now, he never said his name. He only grunted at her, Uh, and so he followed behind her, and a couple of times he just stopped and sat down in the snow to which she would turn around. She goes, get up. We're in this together. Let's keep going down this mountain. And they kept going, and finally they got down to their cars, and this guy who she called John just got in his car and he drove away. He didn't say thank you. He just left. A couple weeks later, a letter showed up at the search and rescue uh, division there where she worked. And he said, I was a man who this one person called John. On October 17th, I went up to my favorite trail to end my life because the weather I knew was going to be bad. With all that was going wrong in my life, I didn't matter to me. But then he kept going and he said, but I did matter to Pam. Because of her, I now have a new direction in my life. I want to live. Friend, John saw Pam's sacrificial love for him and it changed his life. For my friends who don't know Jesus, my prayer is that you, like John, would see the astonishing nature and costliness of Jesus' life for you. That his motivation of love is what brought him here. So that you may have eternal life in him. For those who are already in Jesus, who have found yourself captured on film time and time again in your most unloveliest of moments, I want to read something that Dane Ortland said uh, as well. He says, Jesus gets more joy and comfort than we do when we come to him for help and for mercy. When we do that, we are going with the flow of his deepest wishes, not against it. He knows we're unlovely. He came anyway, and he wants us to come again and again in those most broken of moments. And last night as I was going to bed and reading this story in my Backpacker magazine, I I thought about how John was a picture of really all of creation, laying against the rock, hopeless. And I thought of Advent, and I thought of the line of O Holy Night or O Night Divine, where it says, Long lay the world in sin and error pining, till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn.
a hope because of the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So if you want to see how God loves, if you want a right definition of it, look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Jesus who came to a bunch of death row inmates to offer life and world-altering transformation. And he did it with complete, unearned, and sincere motivation of love for the very one whose sin cost him his life. This is the God who loves. Let me close this in prayer. Lord, this term love is one that can often be very confusing for us as we look to apply it to you and who you are. And so God, today I pray that you will reorient us to your love. Not that it's this simplistic, um, simply comfort-giving or love that lets us do whatever we want, but Lord, it is a love that is far more beautiful and robust that you out of a motivation of love, came and gave your life so that you could spend eternity with us, rebels, who, Lord, no doubt within minutes at a heart level, will somehow shake our fist at you again. For my friends who do not know you, I pray that they, like John, will see of this love and that it will change the trajectory of their life, that they will simply do what John writes here, believe, believe in you, Believe in that love, that you loved them when they were unlovely. And that would change their lives. Lord, for those of us who know you, God, where we're afraid to come to you yet again with that brokenness in our lives that maybe have, has been caught on camera, Lord, will you convince us that you desire for us to cry out to you for mercy. In fact, you are moving towards us even when we are moving towards you and when we're moving away from you. And Lord, give us a hope this Advent season that this world that uh, laid against the rock in sin and error pining, God, we have been loved by the most lovely and that your story of redemption is still being played out despite pandemics, despite injustice. And Lord, help us as followers of you to know what it looks like to live out of that story, not out of another one, another set of lies that we often tell ourselves. So go with us from this place, we pray into this Advent season. We pray these things in your name. Amen.